Hi, I'm Kevin Kittle, and you're listening to The Cinema Files. On the night of March 13, 1997, two major UFO sightings occurred over Phoenix, Arizona. Collectively, they have become known as the Phoenix Lights. The first was a massive V-shaped object that blocked out the stars as it flew overhead. It traveled southeast from Prescott, over Phoenix, and then down past Tucson into Mexico. Later that same evening, a formation of large shimmering lights hung over the Estrella Mountains to the southwest of Phoenix. This has become the most widely seen and documented UFO sighting in history. Now, a new film is coming out that tells a fictional story framed against these events. We had the chance to talk to director Justin Barber about what to expect from his upcoming thriller, Phoenix Forgotten. Good morning, Justin. How are you doing today? I'm well, Kevin. Thanks for your interest in the movie. Oh, absolutely. Uh, thanks for taking time out to talk to us about it. For people that don't know what it's about or haven't seen the trailer, uh, what what is this story about exactly? What is your film about? Are you in Phoenix, Kevin? Yes, I am. Right, so you yep. might know a little more than the average viewer, but I'll, I'll spell <laughs> it out for you guys, I guess. But, um, uh, the Phoenix Lights uh, was a huge UFO sighting in Phoenix, Arizona in 1997. Hundreds, some people will say thousands of people saw this formation of, of lights in the sky that appeared to hover, hover over downtown Phoenix. Some, it lasted so long that some people have been managed to film this. And there's some iconic video of this formation of lights. If you, if you Google Phoenix lights, you'll see it. Um, so a lot of people are familiar with this UFO sighting, but fewer people are familiar with the person who shot this iconic footage. And it turns out it was filmed by this high school kid named Josh Bishop. Um, and six weeks later, after filming this, this huge UFO sighting, he disappeared along with two of his friends from high school. They just drove off into the desert one day, and they were never seen again. Now, 20 years later, our movie follows the story of this character's younger sister, who's now all grown up. And she returns to Phoenix to make a documentary about what happened to her brother, um, what was the nature of his disappearance, and was there some connection between his disappearance and, and the UFO sighting. Okay, so your film uh, actually takes place in modern time, then. It's not, it's not 20 years ago, right? It actually takes place in two timelines um, and that are intercut. Oh. This, uh, this modern-day story of, this, of the sister kind of digging into the mystery is intercut with Josh's own footage. So the story in the 90s is uh, Josh films the main character. He films the Phoenix Lights, and then the next day, his footage and himself are featured on the local news. And that kind of causes him to uh, kind of get the bug. You know, he, he decides he wants to uh, do his own investigation at the Phoenix Lights, and he starts making his own documentary, as a high school student would, with a, with a small camcorder. So we see in the 90s him get obsessed with the Phoenix Lights and start to uh, dig into that mystery, and, and we see how he ropes in two of his friends from high school into this. And that's intercut with the modern-day footage of this documentary character exploring that mystery as well. She, she essentially uses Josh's footage in the movie she's making. So the first half of the movie is sort of inspired uh, by like a Werner Herzog or an Errol Morris documentary. Grizzly Man is a good example if you've ever seen that movie um, about oh, the yeah, guy definitely. and the bears. One thing I kind of kept saying to myself early on was like, oh, I want to make Grizzly Man with UFOs. And so the way that movie's structured where it's like, you know, they return to Alaska and they start, they talk to modern day characters who were connected to this person, but they also show that character's footage from the 90s as they build up to the, the terrible thing that happens to him. And since we do something like that, halfway through our movie, there's a big twist. The style kind of shifts. And what was sort of a more contemporary documentary, like Making of a Murderer, becomes more of a found footage ride. So from the midpoint of the movie on, we're just watching, we get to watch what actually happened to these kids. And it is more strictly a found footage movie from that point on. 
Oh, cool. So the like you said, the first half and some of the more modern day stuff isn't necessarily considered like a found footage look, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a mix of looks. Um, when we're in modern day, it's it's um, you know we try to approach it as if this this woman made a contemporary documentary. It's uh, there's interviews, there's some off, off the cuff kind of coverage. You know, there's B roll, there's editing technique, there's music. So that's that's the experience of the first half. But then occasionally you do kind of cut to these chapters from the '90s and, and we see the world as Josh filmed it. So it's not. I wouldn't yeah. say it's overtly found footage. Yeah, it's sort of a, it's sort of a mix of styles. Uh, that sounds pretty cool. I, I like that that idea, that concept of mixing it up. Here, here's kind of a tricky question. What would you consider the uh, the truth or fiction mixture uh, or percentage in this film? Which is kind of hard to pin down, anyways, because some people, the truth is uh, subjective in this area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, at the outset of the project. I really wanted to treat it as real-world material, and sort of my mandate really was to, at first, try and make a documentary about the real event and use that as a backdrop and a jumping-off point uh, for a fictional story that we tell. So we, we basically were trying to be as very, I tried to be very objective and very true to what's actually out there about the scenic flights, but then insert our fictional characters and tell a story from that point on. So it's sort of a jumping-off point. I started out the project really just trying to get to the, the bottom of it myself, kind of uh, putting on my, my documentary filmmaker hat. And I, did, I spent a lot of time in Phoenix talking to uh, people who were around then, talking to uh, experts, quote-unquote experts. And um, I managed to find some actual eyewitnesses that I was able to talk to firsthand as well. And of course, I did a ton of research. There's a lot out there about the Phoenix Lights. Right, um, right. I guess so to answer your question, from that early event, I tried to really, I don't know, I, try, I tried to uh, tell it as truthfully as I could based on the real-world evidence um, and then let our story kind of take off from there. Phoenix Lights is a real event, but this character, Josh Bishop, who filmed the lights, is, is fictional, and his sister is, is fictional. Although, although the first half of the movie is executed as if as if the real people. Right, right. Based on your own research or, or beliefs, do you personally believe in aliens, or do you think that these lights were aliens or something else? I mean, as far as the broader concept, like I subscribe to the idea that, like mathematically, they have to be out there somewhere based on the size of the universe and the age of the universe. Um, I, I like yeah. that that theory that you know you hear you know, Carl Sagan talk about. The Phoenix Lights itself, um, it's tricky, man. Like I, <clears throat> there's a it breaks down into two different kind of uh, thoughts for me. There's the photographic evidence, you know, like I mentioned, people film this, and then there's the eyewitness accounts. And the photographic evidence to me is actually not very strong. I look at the photographs and the video, and I think it actually, it seems to be what the official explanation is, and that it's military flares. So, mm-hmm. you know, these uh, illumination flares dropped from military aircraft. Um, and I think in this case, they say it was uh, A-10 Warthogs. Right. So that's what it looks like to me. I think they hang, they hang there. There's no points of reference because there's so much blackness in the frame. Like, I think that's what it is. However... You know, real uh, the eye, real eyewitnesses swear that they saw something much more dramatic than that. They, some people say that this formation of lights flew directly over their heads, and when they looked up at it, they could see stars all around it. But when the formation flew overhead, there was blackness between the actual points of light that blocked out the stars. They couldn't make out a ship of any kind or anything, but it felt like there was a large object there that, that blocked out the stars. And so it's hard to resolve what people 
know, they seem like normal, sane people who believe they had this experience. It's hard to resolve what they say they saw with what I see in the photographs and video. And so one, th- one thing I would be open to, and this is something that um, somebody in Phoenix mentioned to me, was that they think that there was a giant UFO. Some people say it was, you know, like a football field in, in size. Some people say it could have been a mile wide. But there was a ship, supposedly, and the flare drop was a diversion. <laughs> yeah, in other words, I've... people did film a military flare drop, flare drop, but that was happening over here. And there was a giant <laughs> UFO kind of over here in the other place. So I think that, I mean, that, I, hey, you know, anything's possible, I guess. And I certainly don't believe the official story on anything these days. So. Uh, absolutely. I, I've heard something similar, too. And the interesting thing about the uh, the lights that were traveling or the, or the large ship is that was spotted all the way from uh, Prescott and down into Tucson, if not further. So mm-hmm. you have wit- eyewitnesses yeah. of that event all the way. But the hovering lights, which are supposedly the flares, I think were only seen in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted my approach with the movie was that there are some real people characters in the movie and there are actors in the movie. And the hope was that it would be hard to tell who was who. And so I interviewed on camera some actual eyewitnesses I was able to find. Some are rather genuine and believable, but others, their story changed kind of as I interviewed them. You know, every question I asked them, their story kind of evolved a bit. So you definitely can see how people um, get excited by the possibility and then just seem to be, seem to want to tell a tall tale. Right. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that there are, that's out there. It's like, there's, there do seem to be a lot of people who had the genuine experience, but I found that there was just as many people who seemed to be um, exaggerating a little bit. (laughs) Where did you film this at? I had wanted to film as much in Arizona as possible. Again, like I, I was really committed to authenticity. Um, and I was able to, to shoot in Phoenix a little bit, but just for costs and had a really big cast. In modern day, there's a, there's a lot of characters. This documentary, this documentary filmmaker, who's the sister of the kid who went missing, she interviews family members of the missing kids. She interviews law enforcement members who participated in the search for the missing kids. And so because of the, those like casting needs, we did have to shoot in LA, um, and around Southern California. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a mix, a mix, man. I, I, I shot in LA um, for a couple weeks. I was able to get a week actually in Phoenix, um, and then I did a day two, a day, a, a day here, a day there on my own, kind of just getting B-roll and that kind of thing. And then for a lot of the dramatic kind of desert exteriors in the movie in the daytime, um, I went down to a state park called Anza Borrego in Southern California near San Diego. And I guess my thing was, it's actually... You know, people from Arizona, I think, will appreciate all the actual Arizona footage in the movie. But, you know, when you tell your producers you're making a desert movie and you want to go to Arizona, they're like, well, we live in L.A. We're surrounded by the desert. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it is quite different. You live there. I mean, you know. However, I think the average viewer isn't really aware. And a lot of the movie takes place at night. Um, So a lot of the nighttime desert stuff in the movie is in and around Los Angeles. But the state park down in in near San Diego called Anza Brego, I just found that it really resembled Southern Arizona a lot more than, than places nearer, nearer to Los Angeles. And it had a lot of great epic vistas and, and cool kind of rock formations and Nocatillo plants. Um, it was just kind of a weird little landscape that um, I think worked well for the movie. So I was fortunate enough that they supported me in, in kind of getting out as much as I could. You know, this, this type of movie lets you do that because the infrastructure is a little, a little bit less. But hopefully that answers your, answers your question. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I know... Uh... I figured it wasn't very likely that you'd filmed a lot of it out here in Arizona. It's, I did you know, get out there, though. And some of the real people characters, like there's a private investigator um, who is a, is a real private investigator in Phoenix. 
there's a law enforcement pilot, search and rescue pilot, who's a real guy from Phoenix who has worked in Mesa uh, his whole life, and I interviewed him. He's part of the story. And then there's a, a Native American character and an Apache storyteller. When I was doing my research, I just had, I kind of was just wandering around Phoenix, and I went to the Desert Botanical Gardens there, and I just met this guy, Tony Duncan. You know, because the, I guess the Native Americans have their own lore about what we call UFOs and lights in the sky. I kind of wanted to explore that a little bit in the movie. And um, I was able to find a real guy in, in Phoenix named Tony Duncan, who's a member of the Apache community there. And he ended up being great in the movie. Oh, that's awesome. So was this your first feature film? It was my first feature as a director, yes. I started out as a graphics guy um, and then later got into digital effects. And then I started directing TV commercials. And then this is the first feature that I've directed. However, I did produce a film called Medicine for Melancholy, um, which was Barry Jenkins' first feature because he directed Moonlight. Um, oh, yeah. He went to my film school at Florida State. And a lot of people on my crew also went to Florida State. And we we're just sort of a tight-knit community. That was kind of the last feature I was involved with in a big way. And then this was the first one I've directed. How was it directing your own first full feature film? Because you've done some shorts before also, right? Yeah. Um, man, it's, you really got to put on a different hat when you're coming from the commercial world. And then also coming from the independent film world, you know, Barry's movie, first movie, Medicine, it was, it's about a couple in San Francisco. And it's, in a way, it's very simple. It all revolves around these two characters, a lot of scenes with just those two characters. And then that was shot for very little money and very little time. And then when I, my approach to this movie was, well, we had to, we still had to treat it in a similar sense. Like we, it was not a lot of money and not a lot of time, but coming off of Barry's movie, I thought, oh, I know how to make a movie. Like, it's just, you know, a, a low budget movie. This is going to be easy, you know, guerrilla style. <laughs> but this movie ended up, ended up being so complicated and layered because of the multiple timelines, because of all the characters, and because of the device, you know, these sort of the shifting devices in the movie even. Um, so, uh, you know, in a way, I think, you know, it, it definitely be, it was more complicated than I thought it would be at the outset. But in that sense, it was a great challenge. And I think all the actors felt the same way. Um, it was just different, you know, a different style of filmmaking than what a lot of the actors were used to. So we were all kind of learning on the fly and working together. And in that sense, it was just really exciting. Challenging, for sure. It was challenging. Yeah. No, it, it sounds awesome. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I think that's all the time we have for now. But again, thank you, Justin, taking some time out. Yeah, Kevin, thanks for interest. And I hope you like it when you see it. We tried to make as good a movie for you as we could, man. So as a Phoenix resident, I hope you sign off.